Well, good morning. Happy New Year. I uh, hope you all had a Merry Christmas together and uh, had a good week and looking forward to the year uh, together with not only your family and friends, but also with our church family as we look ahead to the, to the new year. Uh, I don't know if you get the gist of the videos. The videos are designed um, to have a message to them. <laughs> and aren't we glad that as we have seen, as we definitely have seen in the last several years, in the last year, all the changes that take place, that we can count on the fact that things are going to change. Here, things are going to change. Our lives are going to change in various ways. Our circumstances are going to change. Everything changes. But aren't we glad that we serve a God who will never, ever change? Amen? Uh, he's always going to remain the same. I've been doing a lot of, uh, I've been doing more reading in the Old Testament lately. And that's what I'm seeing is the fact that no, no matter how Israel or Judah or anybody else, whatever they do, whatever they get themselves into and how high they go and how low they go or whatever, you know, it's constantly like that. God's always the same and we can always count on that so as we look forward to the next year let's do that let's just remember god is the same he's unchanging and we we uh we just you know celebrated the birth of our savior he has come he has come to us and he's here he's still with us i mean many times we he, he didn't come and go anywhere i mean he's gone but he, i mean he's in heaven but he's he, he's still with us he said he's never going to leave us or forsake us and that's the unchanging God that we serve. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, uh, we sing joy to the world because only he can bring the true joy that we need that transcends any circumstances, anything, that, that Christ Jesus, can. Uh, he, he, uh, he brings that joy. There's a verse in the song, we're going to sing joy to the world. A lot of times, most of the time we sing it a Christmas song. It's not really a Christmas song. It's about him coming as the king and ruling. And that's, what, that's where he is. And, but one of the verses that a lot of times we skip over, and I don't know why we do, but he says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Wow, what a great God we serve. And one day we're not going to be faced with any of those thorns and thistles and everything like that. We're going to be living in that perfect environment that God really originally created us for. So, he rules the world, amen, with truth and grace and makes the nations prove his, the glories of his righteousness. So we're going to crown him with many crowns when we get there. We're going to crown him. He is the king. He's the king of glory. And we have that blessed assurance that Jesus is ours, and we have that relationship with him. And we always have God, that unchanging God is always with us. And we can count on that. And we can go to him and we can say, Lord, I need you every hour. Every hour. Not every day or every week or every year, but every hour I need you. So that's, that's the direction of our worship. Let's think of that this morning as we worship together a wonderful God. Uh, let's all stand and let's begin singing and let's sing joy to the world.
one more time. Let's just sing with our voices. Let's just lift us to the Lord. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Let's sing together. I need thee. Oh, I I've asked Brent Mizell to come and to have our morning prayer. Father, we thank you for your wonderful blessings to us. We thank you for this new year when we can once again, Lord, work with others to lead our friends and our loved ones to you. And Lord, we pray especially for our missionaries all around the world today. Lord, as they are away from family and friends and, and many of them in very difficult circumstances, I pray that you would bless them, encourage them, Lord, in times of disappointment and health issues and other issues that they may face. Pray for those persecuted around them, Lord, that are being uh, challenged for their faith. I just pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them so that they would know that you are with them. And Lord, we pray for our our country. We pray for our armed services, Lord, our men and women that are serving all around the world, that you would bless them, watch over them as they've been away from their families and their friends. I just pray that you would protect them and that you would bring them safely home. And Lord, I pray now for each of us as we face this new year that we would honor and glorify you and we would seek to uh, be more faithful to you in everything that we do and say. And I pray now, Lord, for George as he comes and shares the word with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Happy New Year. And I must confess that as I look out upon this very august audience, that some of you haven't changed a bit since last year. And then there are others, well, Buddy, I'll talk to you about it personally. I'm not even sure Buddy's here, or he'd have already said something, but I like to joke, Buddy. There is something I want to announce to you before we get started, uh, actually two things. First of all, on January the 8th of this new year, which is a week from today, uh, we're going to be having a family movie night. And uh, the movie, uh, it'll be at 6 p.m. The movie is called What If? And uh, it's a, a, a good movie about uh, choices and the consequences that come from the choices we make, uh, and it'll be a, a good film. Kevin Sorbo uh, is one of the feature actors uh, in this film, and he played Tarzan, so it's got to be a pretty good film. Uh, but he'll be wearing clothes <laughs> this time. Uh, and there'll be refreshments, and it's open to all. It's open to you, your friends, your enemies, just... Uh, anyone that would like to come and enjoy the movie and the fellowship, 
uh, and that's next Sunday. And then on the 17th, and I forgot, Glenda, what day of the week that is. It's a Tuesday on the 17th at 11.30. Our Joy Club will be gathering together, and we're going to have what we call pizza and a picture. And uh, the pizza is free. Uh, the movie will cost you nine fifty. Uh, that's what they charge at the at the Cinemax place. Uh, when I was a kid, we got in for a quarter, and uh, no more. But uh, we're we're going to be showing a film as well. It's a secular film, but it's got a, a Christmassy holiday theme to it. Uh, they poke a lot of fun on the possibility of mistakes being made, which we know doesn't happen. But in, in Hollywood, it does happen, and they can show that. But the feature actor is, uh, uh, he played with John Wayne in one of those <laughs> PT movies. Uh, I can't believe I forgot his name, honey. Anyway, uh, Montgomery, Robert Montgomery. Uh, and this is a, a, a black and white Film, I think. Isn't it Black Mike? Yeah. Uh, but you'll enjoy it, uh, and uh, we'll, take a, we'll take a break for the, the restrooms and all of that. But that'll be on the 17th. So we've got some things uh, coming up already on the calendar for uh, the new year. All right. And um, I forgot where the button is. Oh, here it is. It's up here. Yeah, I got to, my eyes can't reach that low. So I've got to bring it up a little higher. There we go. Yeah. And uh, is this, do I have to turn this on? Or do I, oh, there it is. It's, it's already on. Happy New Year. Yes. Um, as far back as I can remember, uh, at New Year's, people have always been thinking about a resolution We have our New Year's resolution, and uh, they are varied based on the individual and the circumstances of their life. I was trying to think of some of the most common New Year's resolutions. I want to live a healthier life. I want to exercise more. By the way, have you ever driven down Deerfoot Parkway and seen that guy who 30 years ago used to jog. Now he's down to a a vertical crawl. Uh, He moves like slow motion in slow motion. And you wonder, why don't you just go home and get in your recliner and and take a break? But he's so diligent. He's determined that I made a resolution in 1932 that I was going to exercise every day of my life, and Lord, I'm tired of it. But until he's called home, you'll see him out there, and he's going across the bridge, the Cahaba River. He's going up the hills and down the hills, and I, I, hate, I hate that guy because <laughs> <laughs> I made a vow on December 31st, 1985, that I was going to you know, jog, and by January 2nd, I'd already broken it. (laughs) But 
all kinds of uh, things that we want to make a resolution uh, to do. We want to lose weight. We want to stop smoking. We want to get organized, learn a new skill, learn a new hobby, learn a new language. For the last 45 years, I've wanted to learn French and Spanish, but for some reason, it just doesn't happen. I want to save more money. I want to spend less money. I want to spend more time with my family. I want to be a better husband or a better wife or a better parent. I want to travel more or read that book that you bought five years ago in the yard sale right here at Grace. They are uh, as varied as you can imagine. Uh, Do I have this on? Am I ready to go? On the left side. Oh, there we go. All right. Nope. Uh, I must have skipped something. Oh, well. I'll come back to it. There was a study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology, and it had to do with New Year's resolutions. You'll find this interesting. They said only 46% of the people who made New Year's resolutions were successful. That means that over half of the people who made New Year's resolutions did not follow through with what they had resolved they were going to do. They failed. Now, that's, that's negative. I realize that's negative. And so I want to cheer you up. Uh, they also did a study of people who don't make New Year's resolutions. And they determined, they call them non-resolvers. These are people who did not make a New Year's resolution, but they had a goal that they wanted to achieve in the new year. Only 4% of non-resolvers were successful at achieving their goal. And that's far, far worse than the people who resolved to make a resolution, but then failed to carry it out. So for New Year's resolutions, they they seem so negative, but I want to bring to you at least one positive thing about New Year's Day, which is what we're celebrating today. I want to congratulate each and every one of you on a safe journey. And you say, what is he talking about? I live five minutes from here, and... uh, I don't know what kind of journey you're talking about, uh, Brother George. Well, in the current issue of Imprimus, which is the publication of Hilldale College, in their current issue, the feature article is entitled American Christmas and American New Year by a man named Christopher Flannery. And it's really an excellent uh, article because he gives us a historical evolution of how Christmas became what it is today in terms of America, how it was celebrated, going back to pre-Civil War times. And uh, a lot of things you'll be reminded of that you probably had forgotten. And a Christmas carol was was born and uh, all these kinds of of things, all kind of data, did you know data. And uh, it should have been on the... uh, thing, but it won't be. But let me read you just one portion of Mr. Flannery's article. He says, New Year's Day 
is the morning of the year. Just as every morning is the beginning of a new day, New Year's Day is the beginning of a new year. Like the mornings of mere days, it inspires fresh hope, but on an immensely grander scale. Each morning we wake after disappearing in sleep for a split second of eternity. Surprised again to find ourselves still here. Have you ever done that? Have you ever woken up and said, good grief, where am I? I do that a lot. Glenda, is it morning or night? Have I had supper yet? Yes, you've had supper. You took a nap. You went to bed. So we we wake up uh, surprised to find ourselves still here. Like strong coffee, the discovery is rejuvenating. Then we reflect that we have once again successfully spun around the earth's axis. Have you ever thought of that? Every morning when you wake up, I have just spun around the earth's axis. Wow. That's the journey I'm congratulating you on. If we're at a northern latitude, somewhere between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Cheyenne, Wyoming, we have traveled 20,000 miles since yesterday, just spinning from day to night and back to day. When we further reflect that without batting an eye or breaking a sweat, we have rocketed over a million and a half miles in our orbit around the sun since this time a day ago. And that we are now going to start over and perform these same mysteries and miracles again in a mere 24 hours. So it is every New Year's Day, but on a scale at least 365 times more inspiring. I like that. I'm looking forward to waking up now in the morning so that I can think about how far I've traveled in my sleep. It gets even better. What Mr. Flannery was reminding us of was that in our daily rotations as the earth spins on its axis, we have spun over 7 million miles since last December 31st. Did you realize that? You ladies, if you would have known that, you'd have gone shopping to get more clothes. You'd have wanted to have clothes for all the seasons so that as you spun through space, earth spinning on its axis, over 7 million miles. And in our orbiting around the sun, we've sailed an unthinkable 568 million miles through space. Now do you feel better about New Year's? Forget the New Year's resolution. I just want to read this every New Year's Day and just congratulate myself that I have, you know, the old Chevy is still running. And the old earth is still running. Isn't that that amazing? Evidently, God knew what he was doing when he made it the way he made it. And when he set it into space on its axis and gave it a twist, and it's been doing doing that precisely as he intended for all the years since the day that he brought it all into existence. We have traveled as a planet around the sun and come back to where we started to begin doing it again and again. 
I got to thinking, in my 74 years, if, if we go 568 million miles every year through space, in my life, I'm 74. I don't mean to brag, but I've traveled over 42 billion miles. I mean, I know I'm a little overweight, but I still look pretty good. 42 billion miles. That's a lot of miles. That's a lot of traveling. And I'm so, so thankful that God has given me a, a partner to share it with. And a lot of times while we're tr- I'm spinning, she's feeding me. <laughs> keep the furnace going so I can enjoy it. But let's come back to the issue of New Year's resolutions. In the secular world, virtually nothing is said about spiritual resolutions. The secular world doesn't care about that. They don't think about that. They're, they're betting that that doesn't even exist. They're going to lose that bet, but they go through life convinced that there's nothing spiritual about this universe and about this earth and about this me. It's all physical, and it it is, and one day it will stop being it, what it is, and it will be no more. That's the best they can do. But we as believers, why don't we have spiritual resolutions? Because we know better. We know that in addition to being physical, we are spiritual. We have an eternal relationship with the God of heaven through his son, Jesus Christ, I'd like to think that everyone in this room at some time in their life has come to that point when they realized that they were sinful and they could do nothing about it. And they turned to God because he said, come to me, come to my son who died for you and the penalty is paid and I can give you eternal life, and I can give you eternal relationship. You will be my child for all eternity, all the days of this physical life, and then all the aeons and aeons of time into eternity future. It'll never end, and you will always be my child, and you will always be acceptable to me, not because of what you did, but because of what I did for you when I put my son on that cross 2,000 years ago. If we really claim to be born again, to be children of God, if we recognize that Christ and the Spirit of God dwell in us 24-7, and they want my life to be in submission to their will, then do we have the right to limit our resolution to health and happiness? and materialism? What does God want? What are you resolved to achieve? Or what are you resolving yourself this year to achieve in terms of your spiritual life starting today? There are a couple of passages I want us to look at, and we're going to look at them briefly. I know that's a word subject to interpretation, but we're not going to go into great detail uh, I think we can get the point uh, just uh, by, by looking at it and, and uh, dealing with it in, in, in its simple English uh, text. But I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. 
Uh, the first passage we're going to look at is verse 21. This is a very familiar passage. Uh, not only have you read it before, most of you have memorized it before. Uh, for a lot of people, they say, this is my life verse. And I would say, well, then, can we, does that mean that this is what you pattern your life after? Well, I don't know about that. Well, then, why is it your life verse? It's just, that's the shortest one you could find in the Bible, and you want to say, well, I memorized at least one verse sometime in my life. John 3.16 is a little longer, but, but just as simple. But there's a simplicity to this verse, and at the same time, there is a well to where if you would throw a rock, you would never hear it hit the bottom. It's deep. It's deep. This verse is speaking about things that consume your entire being if you understand it properly. He says, for to me, this is Paul speaking to the Philippian uh, church. Paul's writing from prison. You wouldn't think Paul would be very positive, but Philippians is a very positive letter. Uh, the theme is joy. The joy that Paul is receiving. Are you nuts, Paul? You're, you're not at the Hilton Hyatt. You're in jail uh, in, a, in a Roman dungeon, and you have no liberty and they barely feed you enough, and you get no, no free time to go outside. They have guards chained to you uh, at times. And, and you're, you're talking about joy? See, joy, in Paul's mind, is not tied to physical things. Joy is tied to spiritual things. Joy is tied to obedience, it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Now, wait a minute. Don't equate joy with happiness there because that was not a happy time. Uh, he was so burdened about what he was going to do at the cross that the night before he was sweating drops of blood. Uh, he was just a heartache away from, from having a breakdown physically. But spiritually, he said, nevertheless, thy will be done. I'm going to drink that cup, Father, because you want me to drink that cup. That's the only way that we can deal with this problem called sin that started way back when you made Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden, which has become a technical word for a place that's perfect. If, uh, when, when, when at my son's funeral a few years back, I met one of the trustees at the golf course where he had worked and he told me he said Mr. Marange he said we we just think the world of your son when he came to work here this place was a dump and he showed me out the window he said look at it now look at that he said it's like the garden of Eden and he was reflecting on how good it was and the weeds were gone and the grass was green and even the, the dirt was green in, in places. And it, it was a wonderful place where you wanted to be. But then Adam sinned. Adam deliberately disobeyed God. And not only did that affect Adam and his wife Eve, but that's affected every human being who's come since. It affected you. It affected me. We were born under the same curse that Adam was put under. By the way... Can you explain to me 
any other reason why babies die? You say, well, babies are perfect. They haven't done anything. You're right. They haven't done anything. But they are under what Adam did. There's no other explanation. Because there's no death apart from sin. And if they die, we have to say, well, then on on the basis of what sin did that infant die? Not his own. No, it was on the basis of Adam's sin. Well, that's not fair. Why should I be held accountable for what happened thousands of years earlier? Well, it, it wouldn't be fair if that was the end of the conversation. But God says, but also, he says, there's another Adam. Uh, I call him the second Adam. He's referring to his son, Jesus Christ. He said, I put him on the cross and punished him fully for what humanity did through Adam. And if you will believe and trust in that, you will have eternal life. And you'll never have to be held accountable for the penal judgment of your sin. You say, well, now, I like that. So I don't mind being under the judgment of Adam's sin if God also offers me the possibility of being freed from that judgment through what Jesus Christ did for me at, the, at Calvary's cross. Uh, but all through the Scripture, you're going to see a comparison between two men, Adam and Christ. The first Adam, the last Adam. They both did something. Adam's sin brought judgment. The last Adam, in obedience, went to the cross and paid the penalty for sin. And all who believe in him have life everlasting. And that's just the parallelism. And so I'm willing to accept my judgment under Adam's sin because God is offering me his grace through Christ to have forgiveness and eternal life. But, but looking at this passage, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The apostle is giving us his philosophy of life. He's very simply saying that to live is Christ. I equate life with Christ in terms of life as a new creature, life as born again, life as having forgiveness of sin. I can't imagine saying, well, Jesus, for the next month, I'm going to just go my own way, take care of some stuff, do some things I've always wanted to do. Got a bunch of coupons I want to use. Uh, there's, a, there's, some, there's some destination places that are offering real deals, and, and I want to take advantage of that. So I'll be back in a month or two, so hold my place. Paul could never do that. Paul says, if I go anywhere, he goes with me. And if, wherever I go, I'm going to talk about him. I'm going to share him with everybody I can. That's, that's why he's locked up in prison. Not because he was keeping Jesus a secret. He's locked in prison because he was telling the Roman world about Jesus. And some people were responding to that. And the Roman government said, no, lock him up. Paul recognized that Christ was in him. And therefore, his life should revolve around him. He couldn't conceive of life apart from Christ. No matter where he went or what he did, he welcomed the presence and the perspective that Christ gave to his life. Christ was his worldview. There is no world apart from Christ. He has come to redeem it to the glory of God. 
and I'm now a part of it. I used to be a religious man. Nobody was more religious than me, Paul would say. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I went to Jerusalem High in Hebrew prep, and I was trained by Gamaliel, the number one rabbi. I knew it all. And one day I met Jesus on that Damascus road, and I'll never be the same again. He stripped me of all that pride and all that religiosity of what I was doing, and he gave me himself. There was an elderly lady who was very ill. She'd been in a car wreck and complications from that, and her life was coming to a close. I had prayed for her many times. I had visited her many times. Uh, She was Unitarian. Uh, Her Bible started out, To Whom It May Concern. Uh, She endowed garden homes all over the city of Birmingham. She endowed educational institutions, Jeff State. Buildings are named after her. Roads are named after her. I'm talking about Ruby Carson. And one night... I said, Glenda, I want to go back to the hospital and see Ruby again. I I just don't feel good. She's not doing well. And so I went back. And I tried doing what I had done many, many times before, open up a conversation about Jesus. And she would always in the past say, no, no, I'm okay. I've done a lot of good things that's going to get me wherever I need to go. But I went that night and I said, Ruby, I said, I love you, lady. But your health is not good, and you need to make a decision about what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. Would you let me tell you about him? And I was waiting for the no, and she says, okay. So I began to tell her. And before I could finish, she said, I want him now. You know, shut up and tell me how I can get him right now. And so I said, well, you just need to acknowledge to him. You can pray with your eyes open, pray with your eyes closed, stay in bed. You don't have to kneel, but just talk to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I see now that your son Jesus came and died for my sin, and I trust him. I said, now, Ruby, do you realize what that means? I said, you've got this big basket called life, and in that basket, you've got garden homes and Uh, donations to educational institutions and all these good works. You're a a, a woman above women in terms of, of what the world says. And you're trusting that somehow to get you into eternity if it exists. I said, what I'm telling you you need to do is to take that basket and dump it. And then in that big basket, take Jesus and put him in there and nothing else and no one else. To trust Christ is to put your trust in him alone by faith alone. That he is who he said he was and he did what he said he did. And God approved of him and accepted his his payment of his time at the cross. And she did that. She asked the Lord to forgive her. And uh, what a what a glorious time it was. I called her son, and I said, how many years have we been praying for Ruby? He said, oh, George, you know, I've been praying for her for 50, 60 years. You've known her maybe 20. I said, well, she just put her faith in the Lord, and he dropped the phone, 
And a few minutes later, there he was at the hospital. And uh, he hugged her so hard, he almost killed her. But he was just so excited that his mother had, had come to faith. Uh, that's what Paul uh, was about. And that, that's what he meant when it says to live is Christ. Christ is my life. I had no life until I met him. I had no life until I embraced him and what he did for me at Calvary's cross. So that part of the verse, I think, is relatively straightforward. Paul says, my life revolves around Christ. Every day, all day, I don't ever take time off. I take him with me wherever I go. And nothing is more important to me than to be obedient to what he wants to do with me until the day that he takes me home into his presence. But then he says, and to die is gain. Wait a minute. What is, we are programmed in our American society. There's nothing at all in death that's gain. Death is not a good word. And we shudder about the idea of death. And sadly, even born-again Christians who have the guarantee of heaven, they still shudder at the idea of leaving this world. Oh, I, don't, I just got a new car. And I just got a new house, and well, I won't say it, but I just got a new uh, partner. My ch- my son just graduated from Auburn, or, or whatever. We we make excuses as though it's a bummer to go to heaven. I mean, it's not going to be as exciting as this. <laughs> and yet, Paul says, "To die is gain." What in the world, Paul, are you trying to tell us? Was he depressed, and did he want to punch out of his mortality and and join the immortal host of saints? Paul is trying to help his reader put things in proper perspective. Our present life is mortality, and anything that's a part of our life in terms of mortality, it ceases when we die. Now, our spirit goes on to be with the Lord. But we don't have a U-Haul going with us. We don't bring with us all the things, all of our toys that we enjoy uh, in in this life. You might be able to sneak a fishing rod in or two because there is going to be a river uh, in in that that New Jerusalem. So so I I read in in Scripture. But um, this mortal life, you leave it all behind. They used to always ask, how much did Rockefeller leave? And the answer was, all of it. He couldn't take a nickel with him. That probably galled him because he probably didn't want to leave it to his family anyway. They were going to squander so much of it. But what he's telling this reader is that you've got to realize that there's things that are eternal and things that are not eternal. And he says... Mortality will end, and then we as believers will be transformed into immortality. So it's time to evaluate. What are the things that you enjoy in life? You say, well, I enjoy my, my new house. It took me a long time, but I finally was able to get a down payment, and we've got it, and, and, and that's okay. We have a house too. We love it. But that house is not going with me. When I die, uh, it'll be deeded either 
solely to Glenda or, or she'll sell it and it'll be deeded to the new owner. Um, you say, well, I've got a job where I have a lot of people that work under me, so I have great, great responsibility. I've got authority over a lot of people. At death, you become impotent. You have no authority over anything. Uh, well, I, I, uh, I have earthly relationships. I have a wonderful wife. I have children. I have brothers, sisters. I have Christian friends. Well, temporarily, that ceases. Now, that's going to uh, take up again in heaven, but it'll be in a different way. But they don't come with you immediately unless you're a part of that rapture generation. But if you are living for wealth, you are bankrupt at death. If you're living for power and authority, you are impotent at death. If you are living for earthly relationships, you become separated at death. And when you think about it, the only thing that death cannot rob you of is your relationship with Christ. So how foolish is it to spend your time in this life living for anything else? Because you're going to lose it. But if you're living for Christ in this present life, even though it's mortal life, he's still with you, he's in you, and you can't lose him. At death, you will be brought face to face with him. Isn't that incredible? I've got a living will. Don't try to keep me alive with all that paraphernalia. If they say you got a terminal problem, now we can keep him alive for six, six months. No, no. That's six months quicker. I can be free from the suffering and I can be brought faith. That doesn't mean I don't love you, Glenda. I'll leave you a list of all the offshore accounts and the codes. Uh, you won't get them now, but I'll, I'll leave them for you when, when you need them because I want you to be taken care of. <laughs> I'm joking. I wouldn't even know how to, how to make an offshore account uh, other than throwing some dead fish on somebody else's beach. I don't, that's about as far as I could take it. Uh, so Paul says, think. To live for anything of this world will terminate at death. You lose. But to the one you, who lives for Christ, what does death bring? It brings face to face with the one that you've been living for all the years of this life. That's why he could say, and to die is gain. Because living for Christ at death, I gain. I get to see him and be with him. But if I'm living for anything else, death is loss. Because my bank account goes to somebody else. My position in the company goes to somebody else. My wife is now free to remarry if she chooses to, or my husband. I mean, they can, those things uh, uh, can happen. God understands that. But all these relationships, they cease at physical death. So do you get it? To me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Death cannot rob me of Christ. But death can only bring me into his presence never again to be separated from him. Well, I'd, I'd like to say perhaps some other things, but time won't allow it. But I want you to turn now to another passage, and uh, it is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is another familiar passage, and 
We've probably looked at it before. You've looked at it probably numerous times uh, at different times, studying the Word or, or listening to a sermon. But this is an interesting passage, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul is talking to a troubled church, the Corinthian church. You name it, they had it. They had incest. They had uh, adultery. They had idolatry. All kind of problems going on at Corinth. And these were believers. Paul was convinced they were believers. He called them saints. Uh, he, He used we, we. He identified with them. But they were a messed up bunch of people all kind of problems, and a lot of them were falling away from the walk of faith. Not falling away from the faith, but falling away from the walk of faith. That's sanctification. They were no longer honoring Christ in their life, as Paul speaks about in Philippians chapter 1. They were beginning to fall back into the world, and the world's values, and the way the world does things and the things that the world does. And so he realizes that they are, uh, they're quitting in, in, a, in a sense. They're, they're backing away from their commitment to walking by faith with Christ. And he gives them two motivations why they shouldn't do that. Don't quit. Don't lose heart. Number one, since we have this ministry. And number two, since we received mercy. Now, what in the world does he mean about this ministry? What is this ministry? Well, it's unfortunate that uh, in our Bibles, uh, these letters, when Paul wrote this letter, there were no verses and no chapter divisions. He wrote the letter the way you would write a letter, in paragraphs. Uh, you don't, do you, uh, maybe you do. Do you write letters and have chapters and verses and all that? You're weird. They're a great help to us to, to reference the Scriptures. We can find portions of Scripture just that quick. If you give me a, an address, we say, 2 Corinthians 4.1, I can go right to it. But if you said somewhere in Corinthians, uh, Paul made this statement. You'd have to read the whole letter to find it. So the answer to the question, what ministry are you talking about, takes us back into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, I I don't have the time to go into great detail, but Paul is contrasting Moses to grace. He's contrasting to the way it was under the law. And when Moses went to the mount to get the law, you remember when he came back, he had his face veiled. Because in the presence of God, it lit him up. I mean, it was the ultimate suntan thing. And eventually, it would fade away. And he was afraid that the people would think that, that, that God was fading away and not honoring his promise. Uh, and, and so, uh, they veiled his face until it, it finally uh, come back to normal. But in particular, look at verse 15 of chapter 3. He says, but to this day, whatever Moses is read, 
a veil lies over their heart. The veil is no longer over their face. The veil now is over their heart because they were misinterpreting the law. They were trying to keep the law thinking that if we keep the law, we're pleasing God and that's the way we're going to be brought into the the kingdom. And they didn't realize that salvation, God never intended to use the law for salvation. The law brought judgment because the law showed you just how sinful you really were. I always use the illustration of sitting in an exam, uh, in an exam in college, and it was a, it was an auditing course in count, accounting. That was my major, accounting, and we had two hours to examine a set of books and find out things that were wrong, and eventually produce a a uh, statement of assets and liabilities. And I was working on it and changing this and changing that. And Red Wilson, as he always did, he's just walking around the classroom. And he'd stop and he'd look. And I'd look up at him and he'd say, and he'd look down at me and he'd say. <laughs> so, you know. so I'd start over again. And then he'd come back and I'd show it to him and he'd look at it and he'd say. Walk away. I got so frustrated with that that I finally said, Sir, quit condemning what I've done and show me how to do what, you, what needs to be done. And he said, that's not the purpose of this exam. Well, the law was that way. The law condemned what Israel did. Every time they tried to live by the law, the law in... in, in uh, metaphorically, the law would look back at, at that person and just go, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't getting it. It wasn't the law's intent uh, to, to show them the right way necessarily. The law was designed to show that they will never be able to keep the law because the law represented God's righteousness and his holiness. And they weren't able to do that. And so they were supposed to throw their hands up and say, well, then you're going to have to give it to me because I sure can't produce it. Ah, you pass. Because, see, God says we're saved by grace, not of works. And so for the guy who's working, for poor Ruby, who worked and worked and worked and worked all her life, God finally showed her, Ruby, that's worthless. Put me in that basket. Now you got something of value because I'm the only one who can save you. I'm the only one who can cleanse you and make you as righteous as myself and my, and my Father. And we are imputed with the righteousness of God through faith, not through effort. It's through faith by grace. Um, oh, okay. So to this present day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord... That is, when he finally sees the truth and the Spirit of God convicts him and he now believes what God says he does by grace, then it says the veil is taken away. He's now free. He's not being kept in darkness. He's not, he's not uh, uh, twisting the truth uh, to where it, it's no longer true. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. 
and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, and Paul puts himself in this number, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Verse 18 says that the Christian life is a process where every day as we walk in obedience to the Lord, we are being changed from the inside where the Spirit lives and where He works. And He's changing us every day from glory to glory, just as in the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to honor your obedience, your willingness to give Him control of your life, your willingness to humble yourself before the truth of God's Word as opposed to your own mind. And people who do that over a long period of time, you can almost just see it. You, you, you come and you say, you know, last week I didn't see this in you, but, but now God's working in your life because you're, you're producing patience. You never were a patient person, and you're loving the way God loves. You always loved with a selfish love. I mean, that's the way I was. I, I was selfish, and I was impatient. And I wanted my way, and I wanted to do it at my time, my way. And over time, God says, no, trust me to do it my way, in my way. And you learn to trust that God knows best. And so the the ministry that he's talking about in verse 1 of chapter 4 is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer who is walking by faith He is being transformed day by day by day. And it's like you're coming every day in front of a mirror and you see something different. Something's changed. I'm not like, I wasn't like that yesterday. You notice today I'm more loving. I'm more forgiving. I'm I'm more patient. I feel more joy. The most important thing in life is is not my happiness. The most important thing in a believer's life ought to be my holiness because that's what God honors. And holiness is a product of obedience and the work of the Spirit and the Word of God over time. A newborn believer can be spiritual the moment he or she or she comes to faith if they yield to the Spirit. But a new believer will not be mature. Maturity takes time of a person being under the Spirit's control and in the Word over a period of time. That produces maturity. New believers don't have that maturity, spiritual maturity. They can have spirituality. But if you want maturity, that's a process. And that's the ministry that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life as long as you walk by faith And give him the freedom to do those things that he wants to do. He won't do them contrary to your yielding to him. Day by day by day. So what ministry are you talking about, Paul? He's talking about the ministry of the Spirit transforming you day by day by day. From an immature, non-spiritual person to a spiritual, mature person.
and it takes time, but it's well worth the time to see how God can change your life. We've seen that. We've seen that with our young people uh, as they, they grow to maturity to where we consider them to serve the church on, on, on the board of deacons or even the, the board of elders. We don't put novices in those positions. We put people who demonstrate maturity and, and a commitment to honoring God's word. And evidently, the Corinthian church, they were not doing that. They were quitting. And so he says, if you quit, you stop that process. And if you stop that process, you cannot be spiritual and you cannot be mature. And you can't be honest to tell people, for me to live is Christ, but you deny his control of your life. You deny his word and you deny his spirit who dwells in you. So that's what the ministry is. But he also says, where to go? There we go. Um, coming back. He also says, as we received mercy, and when you came to know Christ, God enabled you. He gives you by his enabling grace the ability to do whatever it is that he wants you to do. We, we sometimes say, well, I'd like to serve, but I just don't think I can do it. And if God could speak to you, he would say, you're right, you can't. That's why I put my spirit in you. He can. So trust him. Dare to step out and say, Lord, I can't do it, but if you want me to do it, I trust your spirit to enable me to do it. We talk about spiritual gifts. God gives people special enablements. By the way, I envy you. I envy listening to you saying, I know my gift. Singular. And I say, gosh, I wish I could say that because you ask that, you ask any pastor, he can't afford the luxury of having a gift. Uh, He has to have all the gifts or at least he has to practice the use of those gifts. When somebody's in the ER, I don't have the gift of mercy. Well, it doesn't matter. Go show mercy. Uh, I don't have uh, the, the gift of this. It doesn't matter. We have a situation where we need somebody to go do this. And so I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about gifts. I'm just saying that don't ever talk about gifts without in the same conversation talking about the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, gifts are worthless. You say, that's heresy. Well, I've been called a heretic before. And that's why I'm retired. (laughs) (laughs) Gifts are very important. But in context of being used by the Spirit of God to accomplish what he wants to do through you. And so don't quit. Because if you quit, number one, the ministry stops of what the Spirit is doing in your life day by day by day by day to make you more mature in Christ Jesus. And also if you quit, then you're not going to be able to use the enabling graces of God to disobey. God doesn't supply grace to disobey. He supplies grace to obey and to go forward in your life. Well, these two passages, Philippians and Corinthians, they basically say that for the believer, uh, 
our life should be a life of commitment to Christ, priority to Christ, and a, a, a life where we are, we are demonstrating what happens when the Holy Spirit is working in my life. People ought to notice us and say, boy, that guy, uh, he, he's spiritual and he's mature. And I remember when he was a kid, he couldn't think straight. He couldn't spell Bob backwards. B-O-B. I heard about a kid in Louisiana that was in the state spelling bee, and he was in the finals, and he, he lost because he misspelled Bob. He spelled it backwards. <laughs> oh, well. But the real question now in the time we have left is that, okay, I, I like that, I want to do that, but, but how do you do that? How do you do that on a consistent basis? And I confess, I have to struggle with it even, every bit as much as you, maybe sometimes more because of what's expected of, of people like me as opposed to, to, to some of you. You can hide, uh, hide out there behind somebody taller than you and, 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 and not be uh, held as much as, as accountable. Uh, and so I, I want to tell you that one of the ways I do it, it's not a game, but it's, it's a challenge that I impose on myself. Uh, I, I don't like commercials. And so as much as possible, we record what we want to watch so that we can watch it. And when we get to the commercial, we fast forward. But every once in a while, you're watching live the ball games yesterday and all that. So you got to sit through all those commercials. And so I started a long time ago on a commercial, they all have something that, that defines them. Uh, for example, uh, well, they, they, I had that. I thought I didn't have that. Yeah. For instance, AT&T, their logo this year is, it's not complicated. AT&T, it's not complicated. And I look at that and I say, now, can I think of something spiritual, either to contradict it or to complement it? But can I, can, I, can I use a secular advertisement to generate a, a spiritual thought? And with this one, and I, I have 40 or 50 of these, but I'm only going to show you just a few. No, it's not complicated, but that's Christ. It, it's simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's amazing how many so-called Christian faiths impose all these do's and don'ts to where how in the world are you ever supposed to get through it and come out alive at the end? Uh, I know I'm being critical, but maybe it's time to be critical. I wasn't there, but I had a conversation with Tony after his wife's funeral, and he told me that when the priest began his mass, uh, the family of, of uh, Mary Jo insisted on a Catholic mass. Uh, the priest stood up before the people. Many of you were there. And he said, Mary Jo is no longer with us. She's in purgatory. Well, wh where did we get that? And it's kind of depressing that Mary Jo was pretty faithful and loyal to her church 
in, in those days. And if all that got her was purgatory, then what hope is there for, you know, for, for others who do, do less? But John 3.16 is very simple. Christ did something for us, and God says if you believe that, if you're willing to trust your eternal life on that, then you can have eternal life and your sins are forgiven. In Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer, when he saw what was happening, the earthquake had rocked the jail, but none of the prisoners had left, especially Paul and Silas. And so he asked the the million-dollar question, what must I do to be saved? Now, he didn't want to lecture on on, uh, uh, ecclesiology or or, uh, 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 zoology or or the evolution of man from an ape to a, a Ph.D. at Harvard. He wanted to know, what do I have to do to be saved? You're a follower of Jesus. You're one of his main ones. You, you ought to know that. Tell me. And it's amazing what he told him. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He said, you and your household, meaning if they believe, they'll be saved too. But he didn't give him a whole list of things to do. Stop doing this, stop doing that, start going to church, go to Bible classes, go to catechism, blah, 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 blah. He said, believe meaning trust in the Lord Jesus. Believe what he did on the cross, that it was your sin he died for, not his own. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Well, what does it mean to receive him? Even to those who believe in his name. So the definition of receiving is believing, and the definition of believing is receiving. So it's a biblical term to say, have you received Christ? That's a biblical term. There's nothing wrong with that. I've heard people say you shouldn't use that term. Well, it's biblical. Why not? As long as we understand receiving as in the context of faith, not doing something, but simply acknowledging and accepting and putting Christ in my basket and throwing everything else out of it. So I I do this with as many commercials as as I can. Uh, Bowflex, powerful is empowering. Boy, that's a good slogan. I want to go buy one. But all the people using them are muscle-bound. You know, they're they're at the end of the spectrum. I'm at the beginning of it. Bowflex is not going to help this, at least not for a long, long time. But they got people who who are shaped and sculptured, and they're using it saying, oh, man, I tell you what, 30 minutes a day, and ah, I could eat a horse. But powerful is empowering. And I say, no, that's Christ. That's God's Spirit. Galatians 5 says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Are you having a problem with the desire of the flesh? Is it getting to you, and you just can't say no to it? Well, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Because you can't be walking by the Spirit and carrying out the desires of the flesh at the same time. The Spirit won't allow that. Either you give Him control and do what He wants, or you do what you want. I didn't list the deeds of the flesh. It's too close to lunchtime. But look at the deeds of the Spirit. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Nothing can restrain the work of God's Spirit in our life if we just turn him loose, if we just loose him, give him freedom to do in our life what God wants to be done. B&W trailer hitches. I had never heard of that until I saw their commercial. Their Their slogan is, built for the guy who has everything and needs to tow it. Isn't that good? And I say, bah, humbug. He's talking about the cross. That's built for the guy who has nothing and needs to know it. I thought of that myself, by the way. I didn't steal that one. That one's mine. You know, they're trying to sell trailer hitches, and they're saying, everything you got, hook it up to your truck with our trailer hitch, and you can take it wherever you want to go. I say, no, the cross. That's built for the guy who has nothing. He doesn't know he has nothing. He thinks he has everything. But he is spiritually bankrupt outside of Christ. He has nothing. And he doesn't know it. He needs to know it. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we share our faith. We have a a neighbor who we invited to come today. And she can't because a family came in for New Year's. But she's coming next week. So maybe next week you'll get to meet her. And Glenda, every time she walks around the block, she stops and talks about an hour and a half with her uh, and getting to know her real well. We've got to move on. Uh, also, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. See, they, they say, well, I go to church. I, I practice the Christian faith. But they're lost. There's lost as an Easter egg. There's none righteous, not even one. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's not waiting for us to improve our life and then he'll help us. He said, I died for you when you were rock bottom. You were estranged from me. You were separated from me. And you had no chance of changing it. None whatsoever. That's when Christ died for you. Christ didn't die for his friends. He died for enemies. All right, Cadillac. Two words, they say, be iconic. And I got to admit, I had to look that up. I'd forgotten what that word meant. To be iconic is to be an icon. That is to be worthy of veneration, to be lifted up, to be praised. And I I guess that's why a lot of people drive Cadillac. Hey, a new Buick is is no different than a Cadillac. I mean, they're they're both too expensive. Uh, But I say no, not be iconic, be divine. That's Christ. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You want to venerate a name? Don't say Cadillac, say Christ. Venerate him. Acts 2.36. 
Peter's first sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter made it clear that you might think he's a nobody, but we, we think a lot of him. He's our Lord and our Savior. He's the incarnate Son of God. You want to quit or can I do another couple? Okay. Uh, also, Philippians 2, Paul says we're to have the attitude in ourselves that was also found in Christ. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was quite secure in saying, I will not demonstrate my own attributes during this incarnation period. For the next 33 years, he, he, he's not going to whine, but I'm just as equal as you. How come I got to just be a baby and, and act like a regular human person? He did, that didn't threaten Jesus. He accepted that. He was God. He knew it. His Father knew it. We know it. And in the middle of the paragraph, therefore also God highly exalted him. There's the icon. And he bestowed on him the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Even the enemies of Christ will bow and acknowledge him. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not Cadillac, Jesus. Zales Jewelers. Give the gift of shine. I guess they're referring to a a diamond. No, it's Christ. Receive the gift of righteousness. Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Our redemption is a gift. 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's the shine. And John 1.12, as many as received him, again, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Uh, that's the receiving so uh, when I think of Zales, I think of Jesus, not diamonds. Intel computers, how wonderful is that? No, it's Christ. How wonderful is Christ? In Isaiah chapter 9, it says a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of the government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. How wonderful is Christ? Look at the, think about what he has already done and what he still intends to do at his second coming. All state insurance, you're in good hands. No, that's Christ. John 10 says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. By the way, I and the Father are one. (laughs) Yep, I don't have all state, don't want it. They've got it wrong on good hands. Hilton Hotels, for the stay. No, it's Christ. Jesus said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And guess what? It's free. You don't have to pay what Hilton's going to charge you. And you're going to have the best accommodations you could ever imagine. Liberty Mutual, only pay for what you need. I'm sick of that one. (laughs) Maybe the reason is because that's not Christ. It's not by pay, it's by the sufficiency of God's limitless, amazing grace. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Then he talks about the workmanship in the works that he created us to do. Um, And Titus, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which were done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I don't need insurance. I've got Christ. I'm an heir. Light beer from Miller. Now, I'm not hawking Miller, but their slogan is, everything you want in a beer and less. No. That's not Christ. In Christ, he's everything you need in a Savior and more. Matter of fact, he's more than everything, not less of anything. One of my favorite songs, sung by Sandy Patty and Darnell, no, that black guy, tall black guy. They sing, he's more wonderful. And the chorus says, He's, I'm not going to sing it. He's more wonderful than my mind can conceive. He's more wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul ever longed for. Everything he's promised and so much more. He's more than amazing, more than marvelous, more than miraculous could ever be. He's more than wonderful. That's what Jesus is to me. Keep your light beer. I'll take Jesus. He's more. More than I'll ever need, but sufficient for what I did need. And he loved me enough to pay the penalty to give me freedom. I I close with uh, this illustration. John Peterson was a very popular songwriter back in the 70s. And he wrote a song, and it was a religious song, talked about Jesus. 
and he sent it to a publisher, and they rejected it. They said, you know, in today's world, Jesus polarizes people. Uh, Change the wording and talk about God, because everybody has God. And uh, Peterson went home dejected because the guy, they wouldn't publish his song. But in uh, in his dejection, God suddenly gave him another song. And he wrote this one. And why should I sing of lesser things and things that pass away when I have a friend like Jesus now to sing about each day? He's the theme of angel songs that fills the heavens above. Should I not join their chorus sweet and praise the God I love? And in the chorus, I have no song to sing but that of Christ my King. To him my praise I'll bring forevermore. His love beyond degree, his death that that ransomed me. Now and eternally I'll sing it o'er. I find no more delight in other songs. My melody of love to Christ belongs. I have no song to sing but that of Christ my King. To him my praise I'll bring forevermore. And he went on to be one of the most prolific songwriters of the 70s and the 80s. But that's the attitude God wants us all to have. The world's going to say, hey, you know, give, show us a little love. Well, the best way you can show the world love is to talk about Christ. Because that's the only person who can change their life and change their situation. If you had the cure for cancer, would you go around saying, well, I'd like to tell you, but it might upset your stomach to tell you what has to happen, but it's a surefire cure. But no, we wouldn't care if they throw up in your hat. If you got the cure for cancer, the world wants to know. And how can I sit still and not tell? Well, you've got the cure for eternal death. It's Christ. And he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, as we close, I do thank you that it's not enough that you have guaranteed us eternal life through Christ and his work at the cross. It's not enough that we've been adopted into your family. It's not enough that we have that hope that one day you're coming back to gather us to yourself. But in addition to all that, Father, you are with us now. And you've given us uh, a track to run on. You've given us a purpose in life. We are to be your ambassadors. We are to be light. We are to be salt. Uh, We are to be witnesses wherever we go. There's nothing more important that we could tell anybody in this world other than about Jesus Christ, who he was and is and what he did at Calvary's cross. Because that issue has eternal bearings on everyone who who listens. There is not another alternative. He is not a way. He is the way, the truth, the life. So, Father, as we make resolutions about our physical circumstances Let us all also, Father, resolve ourselves that we're going to walk with you. We're going to make you the premier 
relationship we have in this life. And through that relationship, we'll be better husbands and better wives and better fathers. We'll be better friends one to another. But everything flows through Christ, and he's in us. We thank you for that. We want to give him the freedom to control us and to make us our primary source for life itself. I have no life to live but that of Christ, my King. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thank you, George, and um, hope you take that message, a wonderful message of what we need to be doing at the, for the, at the new year. Take that with you today, and uh, thank you for coming, and y'all have a happy new year.